This is Just the Right Book, and I'm Roxanne Cody of R.J. Julia Booksellers. Each week, I hope to bring to you the stories behind the books, talking with some of the very best contemporary nonfiction authors, the conversations you want to hear about the books you need to read. Why are we, as Americans, 27 times more likely to be killed by a gun than any other advanced country? Is it our history? Is it our gun policies? Is it because of the NRA? Is it the Second Amendment? And more importantly, what do we need to do for change to happen? These questions are thoughtfully, thoroughly, and smartly addressed in Senator Chris Murphy's new book, The Violence Inside Us, A Brief History of an Ongoing American Tragedy. The shootings at Sandy Hook in December of 2012, on the eve of Mr. Murphy's being sworn in as a U.S. Senator, shaped and informed his commitment to reversing the devastating impact of gun violence in our country. I have had the honor of working with the Senator on education and literacy issues in Connecticut and the energy, commitment, integrity, and most significantly heart he brings to his role is inspiring. And all of those qualities are evident as he explores why we have tolerated the violence for so long and just what are we going to do now? His honesty and passion give me hope that this book can and will make a difference. Senator Murphy, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I'm very, very excited to be with you tonight to talk so about So now this is this your book. first book event? This is my first book event. It was released today. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm thrilled that you chose to uh, share that with all of us. So in reading the book, you go all the way back to pre the Mayflower times. So, so in order to ground the conversation, just how violent are we and how long have we been that way? Well, uh, Roxanne, uh, thank you very much for hosting me. Uh, so appreciative of this big audience. I really want to thank our partners in this event, uh, three groups that I work with on a regular basis to combat gun violence and um, some of the people who are active participants in the organizations that are helping us tonight are uh, in this book. Um, uh, and. Um, you are right that this book is titled The Violence Inside Us for a Reason. Um, this is um, not just a book about our current predicament. It is a book that seeks to explain why America is so violent. And it starts with a study of the biology of violence. Um, the first chapter is really an explanation of why human beings um, have a natural predilection towards violence. We're more violent than almost every other mammal species, and you have to understand that to start. Uh, the book then starts to talk about America's unique history with violence, uh, because we are a nation bathed in violence, right? We start with the brutal extinction of uh, Native American tribes by the settlers. We then move to the brutal subjugation of millions of slaves uh, by slave owners. Uh, and so we fast forward today, uh, where a repressive criminal justice system too often forces violence into communities of color on a regular basis. Um, and so um, I did try to sort of start this book with that sort of platform of understanding. Um, but if I could, um, Roxanne, you know, maybe I'll sort of start with the fulcrum point for American violence, which is um, the uh, middle 1800s. And I'll just quickly sort of explain why the book spends a bunch of time talking about that moment. That's a moment when three things happen. One, there's this explosion in the early 1800s of the American slave population because of the invention of the cotton gin. All of a sudden, we need more violence in this country to maintain the slave economy. And we kind of become numb as a nation to that violence. Second, you have all these new immigrant groups coming into this country. And what the, the world's history tells us is that when you have different peoples close together competing for economic space, um, violence results. 
Uh, I wish that weren't the case, but it is. And so in America, this melting pot, um, at moments of, of, of waves of immigration, you tend to have rises in violence. But then there's this third thing that happens. That's something that happens in Hartford, Connecticut, the invention of the handgun. All of a sudden, on top of this um, racial violence, on top of this inter-ethnic violence, is superimposed a small little repeating revolver that can be stuck in your pocket, which allows for regular arguments that happen on the street all the time to turn deadly. And in America, we decide to commercialize those guns and let anybody who wants them have them. And so it's all of that that happens in the middle part of the 1800s that starts to set America on this trajectory, which separates us from the rest of the world. Up until the middle 1800s, we weren't any more violent than you know, our European uh, competitors. All of a sudden, at that point, we start to have violence rates, homicide rates that look very different from the rest of the world, and we've never returned. And so the book is really an opportunity to sort of examine all of those pathways, right? What can you do to control all of those different influencers on violence? Guns, inter-ethnic conflict, and racial oppression. Uh, and all those topics are still very much relevant today. And in the book, as you talk about that, you do talk about the periods of time, um, 1880, 1934, 1990s, where there were gun regulations introduced by Roosevelt, Clinton. And what was it about those periods that you think contributed to the decline in violence? So again, it's really interesting to get into the study of American violence. That's why I really think people are gonna be fascinated by this book um, because American violence is, is not a, a linear equation. It's not as if violence starts here and just does this. Violence in America, starting from the late 1800s until today, essentially does this, bam. Back up again, bam, right? So what are those two giant sudden downward um, trajectories driven by? Well, there are lots of different historians who have, who have theories, but I argue it is not coincidental that both of those dramatic decreases in American violence happen right after the two most significant gun control pieces of legislation passed the United States Congress. First, in the late 1830s, that's our first effort at gun control. That's when we uh, require a registration fee for guns. That's where we ban certain um, high capacity weapons. And then in the 1990s, when the Universal Background Checks Bill is passed and the ban on assault weapons, right after those bills are passed, violence suddenly declines. And my argument is that that's one, because of the operational effects of less dangerous weapons being on the streets, but it also occurs because um, people pay attention to the moral signals that government sends. And when government stands up and says, we will not permit or condone this violence, and we're going to pass a massive controversial piece of legislation to signal that disapproval, people take cues. And so it's both the practical and the moral impact of big legislative initiatives in the United States Congress that can change the trajectory of violence. And that's the opportunity that now stands in front of us in the 2020s. There was another piece that you brought up in the book that you address both thoroughly and in a way that was really sort of changed the way I looked at this and thought about it. So it's, I'm going to go backwards for a second. We're going to go back to the Second Amendment in, in more detail in a minute. But at that time, when the founders uh, were putting together the Constitution and in Washington's second term, there was a real reluctance to have a national army because that began to smack of what was going on in Europe. And so the militias were actually a shared role, right, between the people and the government to protect the country. But the other thing that you talk about in the book that I'd like you to expand on is those periods of time were also periods where 
there was confidence in the government because going back to the second amendment what you talk about is there's this um, distinction between private protection and public institutional in, institutional protection so talk a little bit about what we, what else was going on in those times like post world war 2 and how people felt about their government, how did that inform their desire to let government control and protect them? Sure. Um, so let let's sort of let's sort of go back five hundred years. Um, okay. Just, just to start to start with, right? Because um, in this book is also the story of global violence. You'll actually find about ten or fifteen pages, which sort of explain the broader trajectory of violence. And what you find is that. Um, violence um, declines in this country, uh, starting at the moment when governments start to become powerful enough to protect people, right? It used to be that you had to protect yourself, um, but when governments become significant enough that they can actually have police and they can have armies and that they can actually have a monopoly on violence, um, violence rates between private citizens starts to come down. So there's always been um, this correlation between the legitimacy of government, the power of government, the effectiveness of government, and the need that people have to carry out justice on their own. Okay, so that's a piece of this story. And, 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 and I want to sort of put that in a box because when we start to talk about current events today, what you will find is that the delegitimacy of government and law enforcement in our cities is part of what drives urban violence. Right when only 20 or 30 percent of crimes get solved in the cities, then of course you're going to have people deciding to take justice into their own hands. One, I tell the story of a woman in Baltimore who uh, said to me that after her son was killed in a gun homicide in Baltimore, all the friends came to her house and said, "Hey, let me take care of this. I know who did this." I know the cops aren't going to find it, but I'll just deal with it. And she wouldn't let the friends do it because she didn't want another family to go through that. But that's what's happening today. So that is a really important sort of through line uh, from, from 500 years until today. Um, but as you mentioned, the Second Amendment is super confusing because it's really badly worded and it does um, have to be anchored in the moment, which is a moment in which one of the most important things to the founding fathers was to not have a standing army, right? They thought that would just make them recreate the problems that were visited upon them by the British. And so they were obsessed with militias and obsessed with protecting militias. And so it is very likely that the Second Amendment is really mostly about making sure that you have the ability to rise up a militia so that you never have to have a standing army. I argue though, and we'll talk about this hopefully in the book, that there also was likely a belief that there was a common law right to private gun ownership. So as much as it's probably right that the second amendment was about militias, it also is probably not right to say that our founding fathers didn't think there was a private right of gun ownership. I think they, I think they believe that too. It just might not be what the Second Amendment is about. Yeah. So I want to I want to go back to that because, you know, a lot of the pushback uh, to you to others that are in favor of um, gun control is the rallying cry that our guns will be taken away and we won't be able to defend ourselves. And that's where this is going. You can say whatever you want right now that it's about regulations, but that's where you're going. But in fact, there's two things um, that we ought to cover. One is until the case of the District of Columbia versus Heller, there wasn't any confusion about what the Second Amendment did or didn't do. So. Let's talk about that, number one. And number two, I think maybe it'll be, not to use a bad pun, disarming to your critics um, for you to talk about whether you do or don't think the Second Amendment protects the right of private citizens to have a gun. 
Right. So this is probably going to be the most surprising aspect of this book and maybe the most controversial um, uh, when some of my friends get into uh, the text of it, because uh, through this book, I you know, engage in a pretty comprehensive study of uh, the Constitution, the Second Amendment and our founders belief. And while I already said, I'm not sure that the Second Amendment is actually about the private right of gun ownership. Um, I think constitutional scholarship from that period of time makes it pretty clear that our founding fathers did likely believe that there was a common law right for individuals to own weapons. But they also believed that that right should be heavily regulated. Um, at the time of the Constitution's writing, gun ownership was heavily regulated in the United States. In some states, you had to register your guns or you had to register the amount of gunpowder you had. There were vast populations that were prohibited from owning guns. Um, mostly that was African-Americans. Um, but there was no doubt that there was the ability for government to step in and decide who would own guns and to be able to know who owned guns. So my argument here is that as, as progressives who want to make progress, it's probably best for us to acknowledge that we don't think the Constitution allows for us to take away guns, but we do think the Constitution allows for us to have common sense regulations around that right. And I think that's actually where, you know, 80% of the American public is. I think that's a real sweet spot for us to be. I also come to the conclusion that it's the, the right place constitutionally and legally to be. Um, but you're right. Um, there are many people who do believe that the Second Amendment does not protect the right of private gun ownership, that it is only about militias. Um, I come to a slightly different understanding here, but it's an understanding that I think still allows us to regulate the ownership of weapons in a way that can make this country much safer. So here's something else that might surprise people. And I'm uh, quoting Carl Frederick, uh, who was the president of the NRA. Um, he gave testimony before Congress uh, with regard to the 1934 Act, anti-gun uh, or gun regulatory um, provisions that were coming before Congress. And this is from an NRA president. I might say that four times. I do not believe in the general promiscuous toting of guns. I think it should be sharply restricted and only under licenses. So share with us how the NRA got founded and its purpose and how did it morph into uh, the organization that probably single-handedly is ensuring that there isn't gun regulation? So um, as you can probably tell already, this is, a, this is a book that has a theory, but also is full of stories um, because I, I think people learn best by stories. I think it keeps them focused on the issue. And one of the stories in this book is the story of the NRA. And it is a fascinating story because as you referenced, for most of the NRA's history, they were important, but they were important in part because they believed in the strong regulation of guns. They, rec they, rec they represented gun owners and gun sportsmen who wanted to make sure that only the right people had weapons. And so the NRA actually w was the organization that wrote the state gun laws of the 1920s and 30s that supported the bills that passed Congress in the 30s and the 60s. But then something changes. Uh, a guy by the name of Harlan Carter, and boy, his story is fascinating. It's in the book. Um, he um, comes up through the NRA ranks. He bands together with a bunch of other kind of right-leaning members of the organization, and they stage a coup. They take over the organization, and their theory is that the NRA should link arms with all of these other right-leaning causes across the country, like the anti-ERA movement, the anti-gay rights movement, the anti-civil rights movement. And they should all form a united front to brook no compromise on civil rights legislation, on women's rights legislation, or anti-gun violence legislation. And they win in this fight 
over the future of the NRA. And that's what the NRA becomes in the 1970s. So we know the NRA as a group now that is against everything um, because um, that's who they are post-1975. But for a long time, uh, the NRA was at the table, in fact, writing some of these really important um, pieces of legislation. Now, I argue in the book that the NRA has now gotten so far over its skis um, that it is embarrassingly out of step with its own members such that it can't survive. Um, but that's been a long transition uh, since the 1970s. And we'll come back to the NRA, but you talk about stories and there are an extraordinary number of really heartfelt stories and people that we get to meet that are brave and smart and touching. And you open the book uh, with uh, a story about Pastor Sam Saylor. So share with everybody, Chris, what you learned from him. So Sam may be on this call right now. He's a dear friend. Hey, Sam, if you're yeah. on. <laughs> um, so, right. Uh, you will find if you pick up this book that it opens with the story of a gun murder uh, on the streets of Hartford in October 2012. Um, Shane Oliver is uh, Sam's uh, son. Uh, Shane was 20 years old um, and was a kid that had um, you know, had a tough upbringing. He had had an in utero stroke, which had robbed him of the use of one side of his body. Um, he had gotten picked on relentlessly as a kid. So he learned how to throw a punch with the arm that worked. Um, as his parents said, Shane was a, a great fighter and he had to fight to survive. He set up a bottled water selling stand um, the summer of his 10th birthday. Why? Because he was being recruited by drug dealers to do runs throughout the neighborhood. And the only way he could avoid them was to have a, another job that he had to go to. And so he set up a water uh, selling stand with his dad's help that summer. When he's 20 years old, he's uh, engaged in, a, in a, a car repair business and he's selling a car to a sort of casual acquaintance. And in the money exchange, an argument starts over a girl. Uh, Shane, in defending his girlfriend, throws a punch. Uh, the person on the receiving end of the punch goes and gets a gun from his car, an illegal weapon, fires it at Shane. And hours later, with his parents by its bedside, Shane dies. Um, and I tell that story for a number of reasons. One, um, because nobody knows it. Everybody knows what happens in Connecticut two weeks, uh, two months later. That's Sandy Hook but nobody knows Shane Oliver's story. And yet he was the 20th victim of gun violence in the city of Hartford before the day in which 20 kids were shot in Sandy Hook. I also tell that story because the reason that Shane ended up in that position is not just because of the illegal weapon, but because his entire life was centered around violence, either fleeing the violence of drug dealers or dealing with the violence of bullying. When you grow up in a low income, desperate neighborhood like the North End of Hartford, you deal with violence every single day. And we need to understand his story because it should compel us to action just like the story of Sandy Hook compels mm -hmm. us to action. And I tell it finally because Shane Oliver grew up a mile away from me. I grew up a mile from Shane Oliver in Wethersfield, Connecticut, and none of his upbringing is familiar to me because we've chosen to create these economic prisons in places like the North End of Hartford that are totally foreign to the rest of us. And we've got a lot of work to do to try to even out young people's experiences, to try to understand how we live in different places um, and, and from different backgrounds, and to try to order a new reality, both with respect to economics and gun laws, so that there are no more Shane Olivers in this world. You know, Chris, it, bring, it brings up, um, in case anybody is offended by my calling the Senator Chris, he... I required I, it. it. Yes. <laughs> since we call him that in real life, he thought that uh, in the interview that uh, that would be uh, what, what we would talk about. The thing that you cover in the book that is not enough of the public conversation is there's a lot of 
quick things that people want to say about violence in the black community. And there's a lot of, um, there, there's a lot of deflecting what the facts really are. You know, people will talk about Chicago have the toughest gun laws and yet they have the highest homicide rate, but in fact, they don't have the toughest gun laws. But, but the other piece that you really address head on that I often don't see with that kind of honesty is whether it's poverty or race that is driving violence. And you make a very clear case that it's poverty and that it's racism that has led to more poverty in the black community. And one of the stories, and I, I, I think I have the page written down, but maybe you can paraphrase it. Talk to us about the gentleman who asked you if you'd ever been hungry. Yeah. You know, this was the story that maybe in all my research for the book um, got to me the most. And I'm glad that I got to tell his story in the book. Um, so uh, I spent a, um, just a day um, in Baltimore, Maryland, which in some years over the last half decade has uh, seen the highest rates of gun homicide in the country. Um, and I'm walking through uh, one of the sort of lower income, higher violence neighborhoods in Baltimore one afternoon, and a guy stops me and tells me um, that he's been shot uh, a half dozen times in his life. Um, and, he, and I ask him, well, well, sort of what's going on in this neighborhood? Why are we seeing these just epidemic rates of gun violence today? And he says, he says, Mr. Have you ever been hungry? And I say, well, yeah, I'm mean, sure I've been hungry. And he says, no, 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 no. You ever been hungry? And now I know what he means, right? I mean, you, have you gone days and days being hungry? And he says, you don't know what that feels like. He says, hunger, it hardens your heart. It causes you to do things, think things that you wouldn't otherwise, right? And what he's trying to explain to me is the desperation that hunger and immense poverty begets. And that there is no coincidence that in times of economic desperation, in places with more de economic desperation, there is more violence. And that's what the data tells us. The data actually tells us that violence tracks income and poverty, not purely race. What the data also tells us is that centuries of racial oppression have relegated more people of color to poverty. So it looks as if there is an epidemic of violence in black communities, and there is, but that's because there's an epidemic of poverty in black communities. If you're white and poor in America, you are just as likely to be the victim of violence as you are if you're black and poor in America. There's just a whole lot more poor black people. And so you've got to talk about racism. You've got to talk about that system of oppression if you want to unlock the keys to the anti-gun violence movement. Um, but you also have to understand that poverty is what is still largely driving this and racism is what drives poverty. Yeah, and I think you, the argument and the history that you present to back that up is incredibly compelling, Chris. And it, does, it reminds me, you know, there was a book I read a long, probably decades ago, called Always Running by Luis Rodriguez, and he's actually a poet. But he closes his book with a story about a couple of nine-year-old black boys going into a drugstore. And the boys come in, and they just sort of go into the drugstore. And in short order, the, the, uh, the person behind the counter has a gun sort of casually available and immediately accuses the boys of like attempting to steal or do something. They haven't done anything. They, you know, they've walked into the drugstore. And uh, Luis Rodriguez says that these two nine-year-old boys learn very quickly that their lives don't matter, that they are disposable. And how on earth should a nine-year-old boy think 
he's disposable. If he's disposable, then everybody else is disposable. And that that notion of them not mattering, of their you know, deaths not being recorded or mattering like 20, you know, white people who were killed begins to inform where they stand in the landscape. And, and in this book, um, as part of that story regarding Shane Oliver, um, it is, uh, I think, important to note where Shane Oliver was before he went to sell that car. Right before he went to sell that car, he had gone to a vigil. Uh, a vigil marking the one-year anniversary of the disappearance of mm. a friend of his by the name of Ito Garcia. Um, and Ito had been out riding bikes in his neighborhood in South Hartford and had literally disappeared off the face of the earth. To this day, nobody knows what happened to him. His bike is still there. He's gone. Um, and a year later, the only thing to remember him was this vigil that Shane and his friends were running. And Sam says, you know, it's not lost on me that if it wasn't Ito Garcia and it was, you know, Heather, right, from Weathersfield, that would have been nightly news for years and years. Blonde-haired Heather goes missing, riding her bike in a white suburb. That is commanding the nation's attention. But it happens to Ito Garcia, who has cornrows and knuckle scars, uh, and nobody cares. Nobody cares. And every kid in Hartford knows that. Every kid in Hartford grows up with that inferiority complex. And that's why I talk about in this book, as we mentioned at the beginning, the moral signal that is sent to the nation when we stand up and act on the issue of gun violence. It's not just the practical effect. It's also that signal, that message that we send to these kids that we care, um, that we value you as equal human beings to everybody else. And, 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 and that's why there's a transformational power um, if at the end of this movement, um, we are able to actually deliver that legislative change. And you, know, you can't help but talk about this and not think about the riots uh, that are going on in our country. And uh, these riots have started uh, with the inexplicable um, deaths of black, mostly men, or in the case of Breonna Taylor, women, and there are plenty of women at the hands of the police. So these riots are happening. And there's, you know, there's a complex thing going on with the riots, right? There are there are protests that are related to the Black Lives Matter movement that are clearly nonviolent that have now turned into riots. And, and whether they're um, radical people on one side or the other spectrum that in fact are not even related to the Black Lives Matter movement or are, but how does what's happening today with the protests and the riot, how do they interface with the way you talk about violence? And what do they suggest about what we need to do at this juncture of time when we're on the eve of an election where those protests and riots are being used as a political device and taking away from the original issues? That's a lot of questions, but yeah. I'm sure you can handle it. <laughs> well, no, it's, uh, it's important. Uh, and uh, I think at the outset, it's really important to note that since the killing of George Floyd, there have been likely thousands, if not tens of thousands of protests all around this country. And 99% of them have been completely peaceful. Um, right. In fact, all of them in Connecticut. And we had um, dozens, if not hundreds of protests in this state uh, were, were, were peaceful, um, moving, impactful protests. And so it is really important to understand that the ones that have turned violent uh, have been uh, the outliers. Uh, and as you mentioned, um, there is a really confusing nature to some of the violence uh, because much of it is undertaken by people who don't have political agendas or have political agendas that are totally different than those in the Black Lives Matter movement. Right. They're anarchists or they're just people out to commit a property crime at a CVS. Um, and so 
I think it's really important to sort of understand the platform here. But all of this is obviously made worse by a president uh, who refuses to even attempt at healing the nation, uh, who from the very beginning was interested in only inflaming the tensions, exacerbating the chaos. And I think we're in the moment we are today um, where you now have Trump supporters running caravans into these cities armed to the hilt looking for trouble um, because of an abdication of leadership and responsibility from the president. I really loved what Joe Biden said yesterday. I appreciate the fact that he called out violence no matter who right. commits it. Um, and I think that's really important for folks to hear as opposed to the president who seems to want to excuse it when it happens from his supporters. Um, but to come back to the book, and I won't belabor this, um, I wrote this book a year ago uh, before um, any of this happened. Uh, but in my book, um, I spend a bunch of time talking about the 1967 and 68 riots um, because it's really important to you know, understand uh, what happens when communities of color reach a breaking point, when they ask through legitimate means for redress over and over and over again, and they don't get it. Um, and so I think it'll be fascinating for people to, you know, take the time in the middle of this book to read about what happened in Newark uh, in the late 1960s, what the government did in response, what the analysis was of the causes of that outbreak of violence, who actually did the killing in those cities. It wasn't black people. It was the National Guard. It was white people. Um, and I think you'll see a lot that is strikingly and frighteningly familiar uh, to what was going on in this country in the late 1960s as to what's going on today. And and didn't, in fact, speaking of the late 1960s, I think you talk about this in the book, that when Nixon picked Agnew, he was very deliberately using Agnew's reputation and uh, past behavior to send the message that they would control that violence. There's this fascinating uh, anecdote in the book in which Agnew at the time is a very little known governor of Maryland, and he um, comes to Nixon's intention because in the wake of the Baltimore riots, he goes in and has a meeting with about 50 of the most prominent African-American organizers in Baltimore, and he stages a walkout. Um, he walks out of that meeting and plays to the cameras um, uh, with his sort of fake manufactured outrage. And a young, um, political aide to Richard Nixon by the name of Pat Buchanan watches <laughs> this, watches this on TV and mentions Agnew to Nixon. Nixon ends up picking Agnew for that very reason. Uh, he picks Agnew as a signal that he is going to enter into no negotiations and compromise uh, with respect to the grievances of uh, Black Americans or Latino Americans that he is just going to put their advocacy efforts out of business. Um, and unfortunately, that attitude prevails in 1968. And so we've got to uh, learn um, from uh, that campaign and make sure that uh, we don't sort of repeat the mistakes that his opponents did in 2020. You know, I can't help as you were talking about um, uh, Trump's talking about uh, the riots, that you have a story in the book about in a congressional race, there was a, uh, somebody running for Congress who had literally had a body blow to somebody and everybody was sure that that would ensure his losing and Trump came to the district um, to campaign on his behalf and that Trump actually understood this sort of underlying um, DNA of violence. That, and he celebrated that the guy did that, glorifying it as an activity. And when you think about, you know, what you've talked about when there was like the moral message about violence being bad, that crime did go down. And we're doing the exact opposite now. We're, we're again glorifying it in some way. Not we, not you and me. I, and, I, and I swear it may not sound like it, but the, there's, a, there's a through line between all of these stories, but there are a lot of them. And one of them is this story of this guy, uh, this congressional candidate in Montana who body slams a reporter on tape. Everybody can listen to this reporter being body slammed. And Trump goes out to campaign for him and sort of plays it up as an advertisement for his election. And it, it, that story is positioned at the beginning of the chapter on the biology of violence. 
because it's important to understand that Trump is connecting to this biological predisposition towards violence that sits inside all of us. Part of the reason that he's still sitting at 40, 45% approval ratings um, is because he gets um, that um, uh, people respond to violence in a way that makes us all uncomfortable, but is, um, but is natural in some ways. Um, now, the good news is that the entire course of human history has been one in which we have slowly been overcoming this natural predilection to violence. Uh, but Trump uh, understands it, and it probably is never going to be enough to get him 50%, um, but he plays to it for a reason. Uh, and we've got to sort of understand what the biological roots of violence are, understand how politicians can sort of play to that ethic inside of us, um, and, and, and understand the right ways to, counter, to, to counteract it. So this is going to feel like a sharp left turn. And we will come back to um, the close of your book, where, which to me is uh, so critical, and that is what we can do. But I can't uh, at this point in time, and having um, someone like you, who's a top Democrat on the Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Europe, without um, bringing up a couple of uh, foreign policy issues. So last fall, um, you spent about, I don't know, uh, 16 hours. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, in your statement in the fall, of uh, 19 on the eve of an impeachment that may have come to the Senate or not. You wouldn't have known at that moment. And in that statement on the Senate floor, which I would encourage all of our listeners to watch because it's only more true. Now, you talk about that the biggest obligation of our government and therefore the legislature is to keep America safe. And that um, our safety is now at risk. And we have become an unreliable partner. These are not my words, they're um, obviously the Senator's words. So it, it makes me wanna ask a couple of different questions. One is, are we less safe? And two is one of the most effective organizations that we have been a part of and helped to put together was NATO. And uh, now NATO's under attack under the theory that people aren't paying uh, their share. What is the enduring value of NATO? And is our relationship within NATO now putting our safety even more at risk? Well, it's obviously a big question, but the short answer is we are fundamentally less safe today than we were at the beginning of the Trump presidency. And one of the reasons, as you suggest, is the fraying of our alliances. Alliances matter more now than ever. Why? Well, we don't live in a bipolar world. We don't live in a unipolar world. We live in a multipolar world in which you have multiple um, very powerful nations. Um, and we also live in a world today in which nations have figured out how to exert power and influence beyond just their military. And so China, for instance, is out there running circles around us when it comes to the next waves of world-changing technology. And that's really bad because those kind of technologies um, used the wrong way can um, accrue to the benefit of would-be dictators. Uh, it can allow for people to spy on us, uh, Chinese 5G, for instance. And so alliances matter, not just because they protect you against conventional attacks, but the only way to beat China when it comes to the export of the next 5G is for the United States and Europe to team up. We can't do it alone, the Europeans can't do it alone. We have to come up with a strategy together. Um, and so alliances today are more important and Trump has fought really hard to deconstruct them, putting you know, the next president in a tough spot. Um, I also do have a chapter in this book on foreign policy. It's called The Violence We Export um, and it, sort of has in it my argument that we have sort of missed this transition 
where power around the world is not just projected through tanks and guns. Now it's projected um, through um, you know, sovereign wealth funds and uh, public health uh, programs and propaganda campaigns. And so we've got to have a whole reorientation of the tools that America has to protect ourselves. And uh, what we've been doing year after year is just putting more money into the military, sending more weapons overseas. Uh, we've, ex we've ended up exporting American violence to lots of other places. Uh, and we misunderstand that today um, there's lots of other ways beyond the Department of Defense to stand up protections. And obviously, COVID-19 is the best example of that. Um, we spend $700 billion on the Department of Defense. We spend $12 billion uh, every year on international public health. That is clearly a misallocation of resources given what a foreign pathogen did to the United States over the course of the last six months. Yeah, you know, I, I'm frustrated that we don't have four or five hours or eight hours to talk because each answer that you have gives us like five additional threads. But uh, on the same issue of foreign policy, so there's a lot of articles now about, you know, uh, Trump has transformed the Republican Party into the Trump Party. And Trump in many ways reflects what are not historically Republican values. For instance, a protectionist um, tariff environment, um, uh, th these alliances that were that were created are bipartisan. Do you think that, um, or what do you think Trump's impact on Republican foreign policy will be, wh whether Trump's gone in 2020 or he's gone in 2000 24 is is the old notion of a republican party and their historic um stances on foreign policy gone i, I don't think they're gone I, I worry much more about the republican party's positioning on domestic issues uh, i think trump sort of stands at the end of a transition within the republican party on domestic issues the republican party used to have lots of ideas about education and immigration and nutrition. They were ideas I didn't agree with, but they were ideas. The Republican yeah. Party no longer has any ideas on domestic policy. All they stand for is the destruction of government. And Trump is kind of the natural denouement of that long process. On foreign policy, there are still a lot of Republicans that believe the United States can play a role for good in the world. There are still lots of Republicans that believe in protecting human rights and democracy abroad. Um, because their party has been taken over by a cult of personality, they've just kind of shelved those ideas for now. Or they pretend that they can work on them overseas despite Trump. That's not true, but I do have hope that a more, that, that, that a more, it's not a conventional foreign policy because I'd argue that we kind of have to reset American foreign policy anyway. But I do believe that there are Republicans that will be able to sort of come back and work in a bipartisan way uh, on good foreign policy when Trump is gone. Uh, less hope for that on domestic policy. Well, so that sort of feeds into this little follow-up question I had. You know, do you see uh, people coming along in the Republican Party who in the now Mitt Romney, in the historical uh, John McCain way that you can see in a post-Trump world as people who will remember the, about instituting policies on a shared vision and work in a bipartisan way? No, here's the real problem. Uh, the problem is that those people are not coming up in the Republican Party. Uh, the problem is that you know, the folks you can work with are largely at the end of their careers. And so the new members of the Senate and the House um, are Trumpists. And we've seen that even in our own you know, state. Uh, we have a lot of really thoughtful, common sense Republicans in Connecticut, but they are slowly being overtaken by these folks who uh, sort of follow Trump's nihilist uh, foreign and domestic policy. So we're in trouble in that sense. You know, the folks that sort of think like John McCain, um, you know, they don't register as 
Republicans any longer. They either register as Democrats or they register as independents. And uh, that's the real fear is that, you know, ultimately, even if Trump is gone, he still remains the figurehead of that party. Uh, he still will be the most influential Republican in their primaries. And his followers will likely continue to dominate. Um, uh, so they're going to have to figure that out. I can't figure that out for the Republican Party, but it remains an enormous risk, even if Donald Trump is defeated. You know, there was an article or an op-ed piece that I saw a while ago, and I wonder what your view on this is. And that notion uh, that was written about is that we historically as a, as a country have had a shared vision and you even talk about in the book that we're known for the same melding that might have created this in-group and out-group and contributed to periods of violence. In fact, this melding has defined us. Do you think we're living in a time where we don't have that shared vision? Because it, 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 you know, it seems to me when I was growing up and there were Republicans and Democrats, even 10 years ago, you'd feel like, well, we agree on and care about what's good for America, but you might have one way and a Republican might have another way, but you shared a vision and the people shared a vision. Is that vision gone? Is it just like, sitting underneath, ready to pop out with the right um, leadership that encourage us, encourages us to our, you know, better angels, higher self? What, what's happened to that? Uh, you know, a, a really important question, another really big one. Um, listen, I, I think we have a lot of work to do. There are no easy fixes to what plagues our political dialogue today, you know, to the extent that maybe in 1960, you know, both parties were sitting on the 40 yard lines. You know, I would argue that what has happened is that the Democrats have maybe moved to the 30 yard line, but Republicans have moved back to the five. Uh, and so I think this is much more a story of how far the Republican Party has strayed from its uh, prior roots to, than to the Democratic Party. But there's something much more insidious going on here um, that drives that. A and there's maybe three parts to it, cover it quickly and then move on. Um, one is the way in which we all get our information, right? This has been covered ad nauseum, but it is really important that yeah. um, we don't have common fountains of information. Um, books remain that way, but we get our news and our information increasingly from sites and from sources that only agree with us and feed our own personal narratives. Second, the political process has become more polarized. Why? Because money drives politics today. And you know what drives money? Partisanship. When I send out an email, say a fundraising email talking about something terrible that Republicans did, it raises 10 times as much money as when I send out an email talking about something good that I did. Everybody has to it's live so with that. Sad. Yeah, but it is. And so what happens is we naturally then draw these division lines. We dig our trenches in order to rile up our supporters, in order to raise as much money as we can, um, in order to survive the next election. So campaign finance reform is so important to healing the nation. But lastly, there is an economic chasm in this country today. Um, it used to be um, that the richest people in the country were not so much richer than the poorer people in this country. And so rich people and poor people still had some common experience that they lived. That isn't true today. Uh, today, you have so much wealth in the hands of so few, and you have so many people who are so economically desperate um, that there is a feeling um, that there is very little commonality economically in this nation any longer. That blue-collar aristocracy that existed in the United States for much of this century has been evaporated. And unless we heal that divide, as well as the political divide, as well as the information divide, um, then we're on for a rough road. The good news is there are solutions to all of those things. Yeah. Um, it's not as if it's hopeless. It just requires identifying those problems and then tailoring the solutions to get there. And I remain in public service because I think that that, that path still exists. Yeah. So um, before we close, there was one image in the book, and I think I remember this properly, that I'd like you to address. How old were you when you carried a briefcase to school? 
That is a lie, and I <laughs> want you to stop repeating that. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is a, there, there is a, a this, this, this is a great joke that a friend played on me. Uh, after um, I won my first race for Congress, it was kind of a surprise. I beat Nancy Johnson, and all of a sudden, reporters in the state had to scramble to write profiles about me. And so uh, one of them uh, called a high school friend of mine who told a series of fanciful stories about me, including that um, I was destined to be a politician because I carried a briefcase with me in high school, which is A, not true, okay. but, B, but B, not totally unbelievable. Um, and, so, <laughs> and so it has stayed with me. It's included in this book, um, uh, but uh, it stayed with me because I, I understand that people who have sort of watched my political path uh, might believe that I was that serious a kid. Uh, I wasn't, yeah. but, a, but a friend of mine played a good trick on me. Okay, well, it's sticking, so, <laughs> and, and I'm perpetuating it. Uh, so, Chris, you were on a train uh, headed to New York with your two boys and your wife um, to go to Rockefeller Center uh, during the Christmas season when you got a call from that fabulous Kenny Curran that runs your office up in Hartford and is a good friend that I've had the pleasure of working with. He called you to tell you that something awful happened in Newtown and you went to a, a coffee shop for a second after you got off the train with the kids and ultimately decided not to tell the boys really what happened. How do you talk to your kids or how should we be talking to our kids about the violence and that's going on in the country and at school? I mean, they're, they're practicing lockdowns. How do we talk to our children about this? Yeah, it's, um, it's obviously something I struggle with uh, every day. Um, my children were four and one when Sandy Hook occurred, far too young. Uh, to have that conversation. But uh, as I talk about in the book, um, I was wholly unprepared for how difficult it was to talk about violence, a subject that I know more about than 99% of uh, the rest of America. When my kindergartner came home and told me about his first lockdown drill, right? He came home and told me that he had been pushed into his classroom bathroom with 26 other public school kids and told to remain quiet as long as they could. Um, they were practicing for what they would do if somebody got into the school that wasn't supposed to be there. Um, and I, I chose as a kindergartner to, um, to, to sugarcoat it and to sort of not tell him the, the true story of why that was happening. Um, but I have been honest with my kids since then. They're now um, uh, eight and uh, just turned 12. Um, and uh, I have carefully and slowly you know, told them the story of what's happening in this country. Um, and I have chosen, I think rightly so, to, to not overplay the danger of school shootings, right? Um, because they are real and they do occupy the headlines, but you are still more likely to be, you know, struck by lightning or die from a heavy thing falling on you than you are to be killed in a mass shooting. Uh, and so I don't want them to live lives of fear, um, but I do want them to understand that um, this is a problem in the country, and it's a problem for a lot of kids that don't look like them and don't grow up like them, uh, and that their dad goes to work every day to try to solve it. And so I've been careful and, and methodical about how I've read my kids into this reality. I told them about school shootings only after I told them about other kinds of violence that happened to kids different from them in different economic situations from them of different races. Um, but I did get there. Um, but for me, it was a process. And, and I think every parent will deal with this differently. But I think um, not putting too much on kids too quickly and allowing them a journey is probably part of what works best. Yeah. Well, thank you for that. So I, I'm going to close with... Um with this. So you um, committed what might have been political suicide um, uh, a bit ago when in support of a, a gun control bill, you engaged, you know, sort of um, uh, rallied by Cory Booker and some other of your colleagues in the Senate to hold a filibuster. 
and you closed uh, that 15 or 16 hour filibuster, which to remind everybody, you can't eat, go to the bathroom, sit down. Um, can you have water? You can have, you can have people bring you water, but I didn't, but you can't really drink water because then you have to pee. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. So you closed that story, uh, that filibuster, um, with this story that I'm going to ask you now. Tell us why Annie Murphy ought to inspire us to be part of a change in our gun regulations. Yeah, it's a tough story to sort of say out loud. Um, so first and last, um, let me make note that this is, as you will find, not a book about Sandy Hook. Um, it's a book that starts in the North End of Hartford. It ends with a story about uh, Annie Murphy, but um, I really believe that though Sandy Hook is important in my formation as uh, the public servant I am today, that story is really not mine to tell. Um, it's somebody else's story. And so while there are pieces of it throughout the book, this is not going to be a book that tells you that story. Um, but at the end, there is a story um, from that school on that day, and it's the story of Annie Murphy. I told it at the end of that filibuster. Um, and uh, it's a story of a dedicated teacher who had formed a bond that year with a young boy in her class, Dylan Hockley. Um, Dylan's uh, mom now uh, runs Sandy Hook Promise, one of the organizations that's sponsoring this event today. Um, and on that day, when uh, all of the parents were gathering at the schoolhouse, um, the Hockleys um, knew that their son hadn't returned, but they thought maybe Annie would come to the schoolhouse because Annie and Dylan were close. Annie was his paraprofessional, his special education instructor, and that maybe Annie would tell them what happened inside that school to Dylan. Um, and then uh, the Hockleys had a second thought, which was that Annie probably wasn't coming because Annie probably wouldn't leave Dylan. And that's in fact what had happened. Um, nobody knows exactly how they came together inside that classroom, but they were found um, dead together, uh, Annie and Dylan. And it's important to me because I think about all the things that Annie could have done, right? She could have run, she could have hid, she could have panicked, all would have been very natural reactions, but she did this unbelievably heroic thing. Somehow or other, she found this kid and the small peace of mind that it provides to the Hockleys to know that they were together at that moment, um, it's important. It's really important. And the book is called The Violence Inside Us because inside of us is violence, right? Biologically, it's inside of us. Because of our nation's history, it's inside of us. But there's something else that lies inside of us too that over the years has overcome that, predispos that predisposition to violence. And it's good, right? It's goodness. <laughs> and it found its way to the surface of Anne Marie Murphy's psychology that day so that she could do something truly heroic. And it's a reminder to all of us um, that it exists inside us. Uh, we just need to make choices every day that make this country more good, more peaceful, more just. And if we remember that, um, then no matter how down we get about a black man being shot six times in the back in Kenosha or a shopping mall being shot up in El Paso, um, we can fix this, right? If we find out what lies inside us besides the violence, we have a pathway out. We have a pathway to a better, more peaceful nation. And that, in the end, is the case that this, that this book makes. That yes, we are a violent species. Yes, we are a violent nation. Yes, we have made a host of bad choices over the course of our history that has made us the most violent place on earth amongst high-income nations. But yes, just like Anne Marie Murphy made a choice inside that classroom, we also have a choice as the American people. And what I hope is that this book educates people, it inspires people and it gives them um, an avenue uh, in which to become 
um, more forceful advocates themselves uh, to help us get to that place that I know that we can get to. And I'm just really delighted to be able to you know, share the journey that I've been on over the last seven years uh, with folks through this book uh, and hopefully find a way to get more folks uh, in and part of our cause. Mm. Chris, you know, I'm, I'm not normally short words <laughs> for the good or the bad of it, but you know, your, uh, your um, words uh, tonight, your words uh, in the book are not only inspiring, you know, when things are so dark and feel so hopeless, that you manage to do um, a little bit of what um, Winston Churchill did, right? He he didn't he didn't hide the bad news, but he inspired everybody in England to overcome them. And your book is doing that. It gives us all the darkness, all the bad news, all the. Um, and I think I cannot urge all of you more to read this book. I, I'm going to become, you know, a relentless cheerleader for the importance of understanding uh, what you talk about in the book. But it also ends with the possibility that how we live will be the world we get. And you're encouraging us to be active, that that's how change will happen, not because you, Senator Chris Murphy, are there duking it out with your 99 colleagues, but because all of us have taken our civic responsibility to become engaged. And, um, you know, you, you, you inspire us with this book. So uh, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for um, writing the book. I want to thank um, the three organizations that we've uh, partnered with Connecticut Against Gun Violence, Sandy Hook Promise, and the Newtown Action Alliance. Um, I want to encourage all of you to buy the book, but mostly I want to encourage all of you to hear what Senator Murphy has said. And if you want to see change, be part of making that change happen. So, Senator Murphy. Well, what makes me so excited uh, to be part of this is that uh, all of the organizations that are part of this call are um, already living up to the charge that uh, I put forth at the end of that book, which is to um, live the world uh, that you want to be a part of. And our gun uh, anti-gun violence advocacy organizations uh, who are um, just here with me every day uh, are part of that charge. But so are you, Roxanne. Uh, you and RJ Julia um, have made the decision um, to not be passive participants in your world, to literally dream up solutions that make uh, your community a better place um, and to go make it happen. And, and you and I have been uh, a part of, of many of those efforts. And mm. so it's just so great to um, have, have a, a, a partner like RJ Julia uh, in our community um, that is doing good work, giving us access to great literature, but also being a, a model for how a, um, a socially responsible and conscious business uh, can act uh, in these days where we see a lot of examples otherwise. So thank you so much for letting me be a part of tonight. All right. Thank you so much. Thank thanks, you. everybody, for joining us, Erica. Thanks to your team. Good night, everyone. You've been listening to Just the Right Book with Roxanne Cody, brought to you by Lit Hub Radio. The show is produced by Roxanne Cody, Michael Selleck, Johnny Diamond, and Lit Hub Radio. Our editor is Justin Alvarez. The original theme music is by Kurt Feldman. You can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Roxanne Cody, and thank you so much for listening.